If we want to earn the privilege to lead, my message is this. It's time for Democrats to grow a backbone and stand up for what we believe. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm Rob Richardson. And I'm James Keyes. We are honored to have Governor Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, one of only two African-Americans to ever be elected governor in, in the United States. When you think about how much he's actually achieved, though, it, it, it's quite staggering. Uh, you know, there's a saying that you judge uh, a person's success by not how far they came, but the obstacles, the struggles, and the distance they had to come to get there. And when you look at Deval Patrick, it's, it's quite amazing. He, he was raised in the south side of Chicago, raised in the housing projects, and went all the way to become governor of Massachusetts. And then not only that, worked as a United States attorney. And by the way, only ran for one office, and that's governor, and he won the first time. Very, very impressive, very inspiring. And you're going to hear why we're so inspired by him, and I hope you get a chance to, to tune in. Before we get to that, though, I want to make sure that if you're listening to us on, uh, on Apple, if you're listening to us on Google Play, please subscribe. Uh, please write a review. That's how more people will learn about us. If you're watching us on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button, uh, we, and we'd love to interact with you as well. You can sign up for our email list. Uh, you can send, you can go on uh, to our website, disruptionnow.com. You can also send us an email at disruptionnow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You're going to hear about upcoming things we have, upcoming podcasts. We're going to be doing live events. There'll be opportunities to uh, get some things as well, but you only learn about that if you're actually on our list. So we'd love to hear from you. And without any further ado, Governor Deval Patrick. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How about you? Doing well. I appreciate you calling in. You bet. You bet. Well, uh, Governor Patrick, I want to tell you it's a, it's an honor to have you on. I have a colleague of mine who's also my uh, co-producer, James Keys. James. Yes. Good afternoon. Hi, James. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. Thank you. All right. I, I actually I'm not sharing video right now. So I uh, you, you guys, you're one step ahead of me, but I'm just on the audio. But I can see you. I'm looking at a very um, distinguished photograph. <laughs> All right, there we go. There That's we go. Yeah, like I, 20 years ago. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is a hologram right here. <laughs> there we go. There yep. we go. Well, Governor Patrick, honor to have you on. Just want to just uh, just get right into it. Uh, you know, you're a barrier breaker. You've made history. You're one of, unfortunately, I like to say, only two African American governors to ever be elected in the United States. Uh, tell me, what was that like when you were actually running? And did you feel any additional, I guess, pressure during the run and then after you actually succeeded? Well, I think uh, the answer to both is, is yes. Uh, most of that is internal. Um, you know, I had, first of all, I'd never run for anything before I ran for governor. Um, so it was my, you know, it's one thing to be a new candidate. It's a whole other thing to try to cut the line. And, um, you know, the, the dynamic here in Massachusetts is, uh, uh, which you probably think of as a, as a, uh, uh, reliably blue state. More, um, more than Ohio, let's say. Well, let me say that there are more unenrolled independents in Massachusetts than there are registered Democrats and registered Republicans combined. Oh, wow. The dynamic here is not so much Democrat Republican as it is insider outsider. We have a very tight, very closed, very inward looking political establishment. So I had a lot of people say, nice guy, you know, we'd love to have him part of the family. He should run for something, but not governor. We, we got somebody else uh, in mind. So, you know, the, the hubris of running for governor as your first race at all, and then being an African-American uh, candidate in a state that has about a four or five percent African-American population. Um, so there was a, there was a lot um, uh, there there was a lot there were a lot of, there was a lot of complexity to that to that race. But I you know I got in because I felt like we had not been well led, um, like we had had a lot of people who wanted to have the job but not necessarily do the job. I've seen a lot and of that. that uh, there are a lot of uh, folks, um, black and brown folks, and frankly, it turns out all kinds of folks who felt like. Uh, Beacon Hill, which is the seat of our state government, was mostly about the neighborhood around Beacon Hill and not about them. Uh, and it turns out that um, 
knitting together that sentiment from around the around the Commonwealth uh, turned into a pretty pol- powerful political movement. And um, and so I and so I won. And then I think to your second question, you know, being uh, the first African-American governor in Massachusetts brought with it some um, different kinds of expectations. Yeah, you know? sure. Um, there was an intimacy that the black community um, had with me, I think, um, uh, and uh, and different expectations um, that they had of, of me, including that I'd be much more involved in what would normally be the politics, you know, sort of local politics or things that a mayor or a, or a city councilor would uh, involve him or so, him or herself in. And I had to learn that, you know, I had to learn to um, not kind of be frustrated by that, but to sure. embrace it. With, with other frustrations, did you, did you think you had a different standard with how you were evaluated based upon being an African-American? From yes. You know, I used to, I used to, I used to grouse about it privately. I'm sure you can't, um, you can never really talk about it publicly. Right. And I'm you sure can't really, you, you can't really, but you know, it's so interesting. So 15 minutes after we, uh, after I won, the bottom fell out of the global economy. So, you know, oh, I was yeah, that's this, right. 2006. Seven, yep. That's right. And so, um, you know, and eight years later, we were um, number one in the nation in student achievement and healthcare coverage and veteran services, energy efficiency, entrepreneurial activity. We had the highest bond rating in the history of the Commonwealth and a 25 year employment high. And the part of the job that I hated the most was the bragging part. But I began to I began to realize that basically anything that happened that was great was by accident. Yep. And everything that happened that went sideways was my fault. (laughs) Hundred (laughs) percent. Yep. You know, my that's interesting because having run for politics, too, I had to get myself out of how my father trained me, because every time I would talk about a success, I would always say we we was my default so much because, you know, whenever I wanted to say I, my father would stop me. And then so, yes. so every time I talked about an accomplishment that I actually helped lead and I did, but yes. I always see these as collaborative efforts. My team had to say, listen, no one knows that you did it unless you say it. <laughs> so yeah. and that's yeah. kind of counterintuitive where you have to be in this business of kind of bragging. So I get that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that there's a that part, that these sorts of jobs are a combination of substance and performance art. Exactly. And uh, the. I mean, for frankly, you know, since I was doing it, it feels like the performance art has become the only part of it that a lot of people care about and do uh, and and focus on and and, uh, a lot of media report on. But the substance to me had to be material um, for the uh, for me to even get comfortable with the performance art. Um, So it didn't feel like you could, you know, to the point about about trying to actually do the job and not just have it. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, you know, there were things that I, I felt like I didn't want to brag about before, before they were for real. Um, yeah, I and get you that. know, I, there, there's much more <laughs> that I could brag about, but I, you know, I learned, I learned, but I remember your speech, you know, you gave a great speech, uh, during the 2012 democratic convention and it kind of reminded me that, you know, Democrats and aren't always the best at really actually talking about their accomplishments and they, they allow themselves to be blamed for everything. And I don't want to go down. I'm going to talk about Obama later. I'm actually going to have James Keyes. He's going to ask some questions. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. I want to talk more mm-hmm. about uh, Democrats fighting better, uh, thinking about how to frame better um, as we kind of think about the current environment. But I don't want to go there quite yet. Uh, OK. Thinking about the current environment in terms of for candidates of color, I looked at 2018 and obviously I was involved in the process. So I'm both biased and informed in the process. Uh, yeah. But I believe that post Obama after and then during the president occupant of the White House, I've tried not to say his name to give him any power. But um, I, I believe that there would be a lot more candidates of color in statewide positions. And it looked to be a breakthrough moment in 2018. And uh, I think how I view it is that it was there were some mixed results. There was Georgia, there was Florida, then there was Ohio. Um, And and in in some ways, we move forward in some places. 
but it seems like we also regressed a little bit. Uh, what, what, where do you th- what do you think the state of, of things are actually for the country, and particularly for candidates of color, given your experience and given 2018 and the challenges and the opportunities that we face? Well, I think, first of all, um, President Obama's election was a breakthrough. It wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the um, arrival of a post-racial society or post-racist <laughs> uh, society like a lot of people seem to uh, seem to think. It's interesting how much of the, how, how often, you know, you would hear when I was growing up that uh, we know that America had crossed over when we had a, a black president. And I remember thinking, um, you know, I worked hard on that campaign. I'd known him a long time, uh, long before he was in politics. And uh, and I always thought he'd be a wonderful candidate and a wonderful, uh, wonderful president. But I remember in the euphoria of it all saying uh, to myself, at least, that this is all fine until he gets off of Air Force One on vacation. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? It's yes. a, every president does it. It's required by the job, right? But when he starts acting like he belongs in the job, there are certain people who are going to just lose their minds. And certain networks, and, yes, they will. And 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 that's you know, I had that experience. I had that experience too. Um, and yet, we want our leaders to be. To, to really fill out the job, not be silly about it, not be high-handed about it, but to, but to, uh, to, to, to occupy all of the dimensions of the job. And indeed, at their best, they redefine uh, the job. And I think that President Obama did a lot of that. And I think it's also given um, that and other things, including um, the election of President Trump, have reminded people of a truth about uh, about um, democracy, which is that we get the government we deserve. Oh. And if we if we want better if we want better government, we gotta get involved. So I'm delighted that so many candidates have stepped forward. I was, you know, also disappointed about some of the outcomes that you cite, all of the outcomes you cite. But there were other successes. Colin Allred in a uh in a so called red to blue congressional district in Texas and uh and, and others who um but you know we can't be we can't expect that every time we run, we're going to win. Um, we got to show up and we have to do the work and we have to be serious about it. And we have to do it in ways that are authentic to who we are uh, and not some uh, model that some, you know, consultant says is uh, is what you have to turn into. Right. Uh, to win because I won't work for candidates of color because there's not many models. So that same model they put in there is not going to be an exact model for candidates of color because there's not that many examples they can go from. Well, and, and, and there is that. Yes. But the most important thing is that there's no one like you, you know, there's no one quite like you. There's no one who is, uh, who feels about certain issues, who comes to certain issues exactly the way you do and getting centered, you know, getting uh, so that you really understand your own true north. I think that's why Stacy did so well. Yeah, I agree in, with that. In Georgia. I mean, I was with Andrew last night, um, uh, Andrew Gillum uh, last night, who's, a, who's I've known a long time. He's a great I'd guy. He was Stacey on the podcast as, too. He's uh, great. Well. I mean, just fabulous, fabulous candidates who were, I think in Andrew's case, um, kind of even surprised. I was, that he shocked won. I, was, I was shocked that he didn't win the, uh, that he would, didn't win the race. Winning the primary, I was surprised that he won. I'll be honest. I was happy, but I thought he would win the race in that yeah. early. And the polls had him up. The polls had us up too, and something different yeah. happened. So, yeah. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned a, a really uh, uh, great quote that James talks about a, a lot, that we get the government we deserve. James, you say that a lot. And I know James yes, wants to talk a yes. little bit about kind of post-Obama lesson. So, James. Yes. Yeah. They, well, the participation piece, uh, that I'm, I'm big on that. And I know you just you said that right now. I mean, and that is something that, you know, that we, we can't point the finger at other people and say, hey, why are things happening like this? You know, we are the government in, in a democratically elected uh, with with democratically elected officials. Um, I wanted to talk or ask you a question. Uh, you had just mentioned um, the authenticity that each candidate has to bring um, to the office or to, to, the, to the, the race and to the office when they 
they come. Um, I know you're quoted as saying, you know, or telling Obama, not, don't be a chump and compromise too much with the Republicans. Um, that's not exactly right. That's not okay. Okay. Well, no, I, I'll have to, I'll have to fire my, my research assistant on that one then, <laughs> but no, no, no. Um, the, the thought process though, you know, Obama was someone who, look to bring everyone into the tent. That was one of his strengths. And so, and you know, I look yeah. at him always as a, yeah, yeah. I look at him as a great man, but as an executive, as somebody who could put people in uncomfortable positions and, and really make happen what he made happen almost by brute force or force of will, it didn't always come. So is, is, is that something that when you look at how he fought in through various issues, um, you know, whether it be the Supreme Court or the Russia investigation, which we now see was what was going on and didn't know at the time. Um, is that an area where, you know, him being authentic to himself, which I think we know he did, where he would have almost had to take the choices that he did? Or would there have been an opportunity for him to not, and then I, I, I loosely call, but not to not be a chump and to, to be more forceful? No, I look, I think, first of all, that, uh, when you consider that we were in the midst of a uh, of a national emergency when he took the oath of office, and um, and uh, and yet the other side uh, announced that their number one priority was to make him a one-term president, mm -hmm. you you have to remember the context in which he was operating. Right, mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. had people who were. Uh, uh, who were leaders of the other party, dedicated to and rooting for his failure. Openly. Openly. Openly, right. Mm -hmm. Which is not something that uh, uh, is, um, is uh, common in America, um, uh, certainly during uh, a, a national emergency, mm -hmm. and um, had no basis, um, you know, no, no, there was no reason uh, why, uh, 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 why they, why they had, uh, that, why they set that as their, uh, agenda that they were willing to say out loud. Um, mm -hmm. because it, you know, there was no kind of basis in, in, uh, in, uh, objective fact why a guy whose whole life and his campaign had been about unity mm -hmm. would be treated, um, uh, you know, would have an outstretched hand uh, slapped away time and time again. On the other hand, I think that um, that the president understood that as the first uh, African-American president, he was not going to be able um, to um, to go low um, yeah. as his first uh, as his first instinct. There were different expectations of him. Mm -hmm. um, they were higher. Um, they were, it was, you know, I'm, I'm saying beyond what his better instincts were, um, mm -hmm. not that he didn't get mad. Anybody uh, would get mad. I used to get mad that we weren't calling it what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you actually, you actually said that if, if I can, you said that before and, you know, I think I look at, we're, we're all fans of Obama here. So let's just put that out there. Right. Obama, uh, Certainly. Yes. So that's true. And I, th and I think when you when you actually are a big fan of someone, you can you can actually have a point of view about how you would uh, hope they would improve. So here's one thing. When I looked at Obama, there was a national emergency. He had about a 75 percent approval rating at one point. And he came in and everything I say, I agree with you. He was a, a, being an African-American. It's harder knowing the weight of that. You can't be the angry black man, so on and so forth. Uh, but I also saw the fact that you know, as we said, Republicans made it very clear that, and they said it out loud, the, 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 the job of the majority is to govern, the job of the minority is to govern the majority. That's what Mitch McConnell said out loud in a meeting to the newspapers. And then I think not just, not just Obama, but kind of Democrats went along to try to get approval when they didn't need it at that time. And you get a national emergency, you try, you try to compromise, but if you don't push it through, and I think there were, there were some examples when uh, they showed they weren't going to do it. And then I think he still wanted to go back. Like the Supreme Court is another example. I think I wish he would have pushed harder. Uh, I don't think there was enough of a fight for all of us to look at what what we've lost now to the Supreme Court. And then I look at the Russian uh, investigation where Obama wanted uh, he wanted uh, he wanted uh, Mitch McConnell to sign off on what he knew was happening and what Mitch McConnell knew was happening. But, you know, at, at some point, you got to know the, these people are not in it. 
uh, for the common good. They're in it to destroy destroy him and do anything possible to move forward. So I don't I don't actually think it's going low to go direct and hard. And, you know, I think if there was anything that folks wish we would have saw more of Obama was uh, taking it harder to them, because I think they uh, he let them get away with too much in framing the narrative. And Democrats in general do this. And it's kind of the conversation that we were kind of talking about. How do we get to that point? I'm sorry. Well, I'm hearing I'm hearing you make two different points. The one point about going hard at. uh, the majority leader in the Senate. And, uh, you know, I, I get that instinct. I understand it. Um, I know, and you ought to know, you can go as hard as you want at that particular Senate majority leader and nothing's going to happen. He doesn't care. <laughs> That's true. Um, so it, it, it's not going to change an outcome. Yeah. Um, I will say that the, the second uh, point though, about, um, and so, so just to finish that point, the, a, a White House has to make a judgment about whether they want to, and, and any political leader has to make a judgment sure. about whether they suck it up, they make their point and move on, or whether they make, they try to make an extended point of that point um, when it's not actually going to move the agenda. Yeah. I think the question of the narrative and how the story gets told exactly um, is a is a, is a different one, I and agree. that is something that I've worried about for Democrats about Democrats for a long, long time. I mean, like it or not, and I I say this as a Democrat who doesn't think you have to hate Republicans to be a good Democrat, um, but Republicans have been setting, uh, have been framing the narrative for a long time. And they're really, really good at it. It wasn't just during Obama's time. Oh, no. It was way before that, to the point where, um, you know, some Democrats felt like they had to make their proposals in a way that anticipated the uh, the narrative uh, Republicans had, had set, whether it actually got the job done or, or uh, you know, the, the substantive proposal got the job done or, or, or not. And one of the most exciting things about right now, I think, is that a lot of folks are beginning to wake up to that and say, you know what, we, we got to think about this and talk about this differently. A frustration I sometimes had with... Um, President Obama's administration, um, and I think I, th- I think about this most especially in the context of the ACA of healthcare reform, is that um, he had a unique rapport with individual Americans mm-hmm. across the political spectrum, um, and if anybody could speak to them and persuade them, it was he. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but you know, presidents have a lot to do. So and a lot of it we don't see and we don't fully appreciate the choices they're having to uh, they're having to make. But the notion that any Democrat would ever be uncomfortable about the idea of trying to extend basic access to health insurance to every living soul as a question of decency is uh, is astonishing. And yet. Lots of Democrats ran away from that, and still, um, and st- still kind of are uh, in the midterms after the after the act was passed. And what's interesting is, you know, to follow up on that point, I want to let you get back to it. Uh, you are so right. Republicans have been great about framing the narrative, as Reagan famously said, and I think it's true. When you're explaining, you're losing, and I think. Obama and other Democrats sometimes find themselves trying to explain all the intricate details of why they are right and respond to the outlandish things instead of just framing the issue from a moral point of view, which is exactly what you said. Uh, I've had to train myself out of it. From a a values point of view. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm an amateur. I've only run for one thing. (laughs) It's a pretty big position, though. I don't have all the answers and I don't think anybody has all the answers. And by the way, Democrats don't have all. They don't have a corner on the on on all the best ideas. Good ideas are going to come from lots of different places. But there are a set of democratic values that, frankly, um, explain why I'm a Democrat, um, because they are deeply connected with American values. You know, notions of opportunity, of equality, of fair play, um, of freedom. They are very, very central 
to why I am a Democrat and why I think Democrats make the policy choices we do. And uh, it seems to me if we keep coming back to why we are pushing this or that policy choice, what it is we're trying to accomplish, and that it isn't just for the people who vote for us, it's the people who, uh, it's for every soul uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the United States. Those few um, uh, points alone differentiate us from the modern um, uh, national Republican Party, which is a party deeply connected to a few very powerful interests who are looking for, um, looking for ways to protect those interests. Yep. James, do you have another question? I, I, yeah, I did. Um, and actually, it's, it's a good lead in um, what you just said. I was I, I am aware of the quote that, that both fear and hope is used and is American, but one only one is patriotic. Uh, I believe that's been attributed to you. Um, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I danced around it much, much more delicately that time. Um, but. For with, I think the contrast that we've seen, you know, as far as you know, Obama who who brought hope and was able to inspire people, and and through that, as you noted, was able to really make a personal connection with the American electorate in a way that we haven't often seen, um, you know. But Obama learned, you know, with the hope, um, it was more difficult to move the agenda forward on that once he got into office. Whereas we see, you know, with the current administration, uh, we almost get the, the flip side, you know, where where Trump uses fear to, to, to push his agenda, um, you know, along with, you know, a willing media or at least portions of the media. And we see that sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work. Um, but can you expand more, you know, on how fear and hope in terms of just how to, to connect with that core human emotion or that core human instinct that's in all of us, you know, at, are at play in our democracy and how they can be used to, to advance policies that are consistent with our values? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an obvious point. Fear is a time-tested political tool. Yeah. It's been used all over the world at, uh, you know, at every age of man. And, and people come back to it. They come back to it mostly when they don't want to do the audacious um, when they don't want to step out on faith and try something new, um, when they don't want to meet someone new, when they don't want to integrate someone new or something new, a new idea, uh, for example. Um, and so make uh, and, and frankly, um, fear is underneath the, um, the deflecting of responsibility to the other, um, which is a lot of what we see today. But it's not the first time we've seen that in politics, um, uh, here or elsewhere. But, you know, hope is so uniquely central um, to the American uh, narrative, right? It was, a, it was a completely untried experiment to create the country in the first place yeah. um, on the strength of a handful of civic ideals. You know, most countries are countries because of geography or because of language or because of race or religion uh, or, or even culture. We were not created that way. It was a handful of, of, of civic ideals, and I mentioned them already, freedom, equality, opportunity, fair play. We tossed that out there and said, let's make a country around that. That was a wildly hopeful idea. And, um, and I think, it, you know, you can, you can, you can poo-poo the fact that that our reality was in tension with those ideals from the beginning. You know, slavery was a direct um, contradiction mm -hmm. of those ideals right from the beginning. But, well, the but they were they knew it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was aspirational. You know, they in, in knew it. They understood. I, I mean, I'm so convinced reading some of their papers that they understood sooner or later there would be a reckoning. Mm -hmm. And indeed, that uh, that that reckoning, um, meaning that the, the gap between our reality and those ideals at any given time and the insistence on on uh, and, and frankly, having the framework to address that was mm -hmm. a part and is a part of what is magnificent about the country. So if you are truly patriotic, in my view, you have to be about hope. 
You have to be about the aspirational because that is the source of our power. It's the source of our uh, past greatness, and it's the source of our uh, our potential greatness going forward. Well, this is a, this is this is a good transition. So you're very hopeful about our nation. You have a positive vision, and at one point you were discussed as a 2020 candidate, but then you uh, made it very clear that you weren't going to be, and you cited cruelty of the process. So I want you to expound upon that, and do you think the process has gotten worse? It sounds, sounds like you do, and how do you see it becoming better? Well, I think the process, you know, the, 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 the sad truth is nowadays, if you, know, you sign up, but um, all the people and, and things you love get dragged along behind you without signing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I don't know what all the reasons for that, um, uh, for that are, you, you know, 24 seven cycle of outrage that we, that we call our media and, and for yourself, the, the kind of, the kind of, you know, everything, everything counts sort of, you know, no matter how far in your past it was, no matter, frankly, how irrelevant. I remember, was it Arsenio Hall? He's, you probably don't even remember. I know Arsenio Hall. Uh, woo, 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 woo. Yeah. Arsenio Hall who asked Bill Clinton or maybe someone on his show when he was running the first time, whether he was a, was he was a box, whether he was a boxer or briefs guy. I I mean, it's like, you know, and everybody thought it was so, it was so, um, it was so cute. Um, and it humanized Bill Clinton. So it's like, we have forgotten sort of the unwritten rules (laughs) of democracy. And some of it is decorum and restraint yeah. uh, and humility, you know, are they, we all in this together? You know, that, like, yeah. Um, yeah. And not everybody wants to, or even cares about the, those kinds of side details. Um, but I think also for us, you know, we have, um, we have, uh, a, a, I mean, I, as a Democrat, I look at this field and I say, this is such a big, broad, talented, exciting field. I don't even know how you get noticed in a field like this without being field. sensational. Anybody, or, uh, anybody or, that stands, a couple people that stand out in different ways. I'm not asking you to endorse anybody. I'm just saying anybody that says something that's like, oh, wow, that was insightful or, or, or what's your, what are your thoughts on the, on the field? Well, I think that, you know, they've, they, they all have something to contribute and they all have um, uh, different perspectives um, uh, to bring. And on the whole, um, they seem to have kept it uh, positive among themselves. You know, my hope is that they will continue to keep it. Um, and in fact, <clears throat> will let it be a contest of ideas. I hope so. It's early though. Personalities and all that. And my hope is that they will focus on a future um, democratic vision for the country and for all of the country, not just the people who vote for us, instead of, um, you know, competing to see who has the best critique of the current administration. Um, Cause you know, I think that is not how we win. I, I actually agree with that. Uh, well, we're kind of wrapping up. I know we, you don't have a lot of time left. I'd like to spend a little bit of time learning about your background. So you were raised in Southside Chicago. I want to take yourself back yeah. to being that boy from Southside Chicago. What did you want to be when you grew up and what do you want to be now? Uh, that's so, it's such an interesting question. What I wanted to be when I grew up was an architect. Okay. Um, I still want to be an architect. And one day, (laughs) one day I'm going to be an architect. I'm just really interested in, um, in design and, uh, and in, uh, you know, how spaces are organized and how, you know, how we live and how we work and, and the impact of space uh, on that. I don't know if that comes from growing up in a, in a two bedroom tenement with a window that opened onto an air shaft or, or what, but I, I have, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just very interested in the, in the science and the art of, uh, of architecture. You know, that would make you a good governor. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. That, that, that makes, that makes sense why it was. So who inspires you and why? Well, you know, I have, I have the blessing of many, um, mentors and, uh, and, you know, adults who cared about me. Um, a lot of times I noticed when I was in public life and I get introduced, people would frequently go right to 
you know, grew up on the South side on welfare and then got a scholarship to go to Milton Academy for high school. And that was a huge moment for me, but it doesn't do honor or justice to the incredible adults in the church, in schools, um, on the South side who, uh, in my home, who, uh, who made a difference for me. And I think probably the one I would cite, um, is, uh, my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Queens, who, uh, you know, 35 kids in the classroom, you know, we were all of us a mess. Um, but she taught us to say the greetings and count in German. Uh, she took us to the first opera I'd ever seen. Um, I didn't know what they were singing about. I still don't know what they're singing about, but I loved it. She took us to a movie that was just out at the time called The Sound of Music. And she used it to introduce us to um, World War II history and uh, uh, and sort of modern European history. She's, I think of her as the first person who who helped me imagine what it might be like to be a citizen of the world. And that's a pretty big gift to give to a, you know, 12 year old on the South side of Shea. It's probably a pretty good, pretty big gift to give to any 12 year old, but to, to us was a jewel. And, uh, you know, she stayed involved in my life and mine and hers. She came to my college graduation. She, well, she came to my graduation from Milton Academy, my college graduation, my law school graduation. She was there when I was married. She was there when I was sworn in as head of the Civil Rights Division. And she would have been at my inauguration had she been alive. My third grade teacher came, but my, my sixth grade teacher was gone by then. Well, that's awesome. It is important for us to put life into those who, don't, who might not see that the poss- there's, there's other possibilities outside of their current environment. And that, right. that is the most important gift. Final question. If you can have an advertisement, a billboard that states your philosophy or what you want to leave, what would that say and why? It would say, pass it on. And it would say that because of an encounter I had um, when I was maybe 16 years old and visiting home uh, on a school vacation and I was running to catch a bus. I was late to meet somebody and I got on the bus and the bus started to move. And I, I was standing at the coin box. They still had coin boxes then. And uh, I, I realized. I don't know what a coin box is, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the bus started to move and I realized I didn't have enough money for the fare. I don't know if I've been rushing or they changed the fare since I've been away. And I stood there looking stupid and the, and the dr- driver said, sit down, son. And he pointed to the seat closest to the door. And I knew I was, he was just going to let me have it. And I started to explain and said I was sorry. I wasn't trying to beat the Chicago Transit Authority out of anything. This great old black guy, sort of wizened beard or, you know, salt and pepper beard. Uh, he, looked, he looked from the road. He looked at me and he sized me up really fast the way people who serve the public can do. And he turned back uh, to the road and his expression softened. And he said, just pass it on, son. Just pass it on. And it was such a tiny act of grace, but it had a huge impact on me. Um, and it just made me think about, you know, there are countless small ways where the way you treat others makes them want to be better. The way he wanted, uh, I think, made me want to be better. So I think about that. Well, that's a great way to end it. And we'll say to the listeners Pass it on. Pass it on. Uh, yeah, Deval Patrick, uh, Governor Deval Patrick, it's been an honor to have you on and hope to have you on sometime again in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. So uh, l- let's talk a little bit about his comments on Obama. And uh, I-, I think he, 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 he uh, cautiously agreed with us, but I do think there was agreement that uh, Obama despite all of his challenges that he had in front of him, probably should have pushed a little harder when he had the opportunity. Well, I don't know. Um, I think that he provided some good context um, in terms of uh, just the struggle that Obama was going through, the choices that had to be made consciously. You know, like the, these were decisions that may, were made in terms of whether to press an issue, um, whether you, you think that pressing an issue will get you somewhere, which really seemed to be the underlying point. You know, one of yeah. the times was just that, hey, you know, sometimes it may not, it, it, you may 
uh, move on if you think that pressing the issue won't get you where you go from want to go from a results standpoint. Um, and so I, I think it was it was good context, you know, because oftentimes from the side we look and say, hey, you know, you you when you had the advantage the sure. first two years, you should have pressed the advantage. And, um, and when you didn't have the advantage per se, in terms of numbers in Congress, um, there are still things that you can do, um, as an executive to make it un- more uncomfortable for people to disagree with you and less emboldened to come after you. Yeah. You know? So there, it, yeah. it doesn't always mean going to war or being, you know, scorched earth. Like we see with the administration yeah. now where they're talking about, they, they want to, you know, put people in, in cities that are willing to be sanctuary. Yeah. You know, like, or it's like truly, you know, there, I there's a balance, what you're saying. Life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's a, a balance, balance, but I do think I, I'm trying to imagine the current president with 60 Republicans in the Senate and what was it like 60 plus in the house and they would have passed everything under the sun and yeah, they would have pressed their advantage. Right. And, know I, that. and I think at a time of emergency, he would have been justified in doing it. I, I, I believe, and this is, again, no one has all the answers as Deval Patrick. I'm speaking purely from my opinion. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. if I was president, I would have a very different view. But as I see it and as I look at it, I would, I would say that during that time, uh, the Democrats that wanted to compromise and look like they were leading towards what their colleagues wanted on, on the other side, they all lost. So I'm just, I'm just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it definitely didn't seem to be an effective uh, approach. Um, I would, I, I'll, one thing that I will mention, I think if you reverse the time frames, that things would have happened much differently. What I mean by that, if Obama would have started without the advantage of numbers in Congress, and seeing how the Republicans basically were trying to thwart his every move, then if he would have gotten the advantage later in the fact, he would have been more inclined to impress. But one thing I think we always have to remember about uh, President Obama is that throughout his life, he always was successful at winning people over. That's true. That wasn't the first time that he he reached out to people and said, hey, let me help you. I know you don't agree with me. And they slapped his hand away. But in in his life, he was always able to win those people over. And so this was the, at least, you know, from a public life standpoint, this is the first time we see that there was no winning over. And maybe by the time he realized that it was that the the numbers had shifted in Congress to where life just became much harder. Um, And so the ability to inspire hope, the ability to, to try to bring out the best of people um, is commendable. We should always look at that as commendable. Right. And, and, and like, you know, Deval Patrick said, that's the principles that our, our nation, you know, was founded upon, you know, like talking about all this stuff that we're not even delivering yet, yep. you know, like w- women weren't voting, you know, like it, sure. it, all of this stuff started in a way, um, you know, but at the same time, we still look back and say, Hey, you know, I wish there was more. And maybe it's a lesson for us, the people coming next, um, you know, and I say us, meaning all of us, you know, the, 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 the people coming next, the people coming up in 2020 that, we need to have a clear vision of what we want to do. And we need to try to make that happen and not try to win over people or convince people who are dead set against us. Exactly. You know, cause what ends up happening as we see is that once you give it to them, they hated it when you would, you know, Obamacare, Obamacare, Obamacare. And then Republicans now are like, look, don't even bring anything to the floor talking about getting rid of Obamacare. Yep, they're, yep. they're telling Trump that explicitly. So everybody's happy that they that it's there now or not everybody, but you know, that enough of them that the Republican party is afraid to try to, 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 to overturn that right now. Um, not the white house necessarily, but you know, Congress. Sure. So it, it, that's a lesson in itself also is that, Hey, you know, you, you do what you believe in, you know, do it full, full, full force. And you know, it, Trust your instinct, trust your gut that it's going to lead us in the right direction. And and most importantly, as we close, we got to get engaged. We get the government we deserve. As we often say, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Price of liberty. And if folks don't want to stay involved, you you lose your liberty. Stay woke. You want to stay free. If you don't show up, if you don't show up, then yes. I mean, and that's, we, we, we see that in terms of how the government is run. The government responds to the people that show up in terms of numbers. It's not about one person. It's about the collective. And, and that's something I, I, I wanted to actually mention that uh, when we were talking about uh, with Deval Patrick, the, some of the nastiness and he, and he brought up, you know, you run and then it's the people you love that are dragged through the whole process. Yeah. They, they didn't choose it. You at least chose it. Um, you know, it could, cause what we see, I think the root of that actually is that there's a belief either 
at the top of, you know, meaning the people who are actually running or the people who are trying to get things done, there's a, a belief amongst many people that we're just not all in this together anymore. And that's dangerous. You know, I think dangerous. that's dangerous where, you know, like it, it is seen as an adversarial situation, but not an adversarial situation towards a common goal, but an adversarial situation. Like I need to destroy my enemy. You know, you and I, Robert, as lawyers, we deal with adversarial uh, situations all the time. And actually that's the structure. That's the, that the structure is to have an adversarial um, resolution of a dispute, one person on one side, or, you know, people on one side, people on another, then you argue for your side, but our obligation, our higher calling to that is the interest of justice. And so there is something that's supposed to bring us together in terms of what we're trying to actually serve. We're serving justice, even though we're participating in an adversarial system. My question, you know, nowadays is we're serving democracy. We're serving, we're, we're patriotic Americans. Um, are we using our disagreements to further debate, to try to come up with better ideas, to try to, to flesh out the, the good and bad in our ideas? Or are we just doing this to try to tear each other down? You know, because tearing each other down is not how you build a country. But no, we should. that's how you destroy we, a country, though. Yeah, exactly. We should use our disagreements to vet our ideas. You know, if you disagree with Medicare for all, then think about it and explain the, the, the downfalls that we would have to watch out for. And then the people on the other side are, can say, okay, well, I disagree with this or I agree with this. Maybe they tweak, tweak it a little bit, or maybe they change it a little bit. Like that's how we perfect our ideas. That's how we make our ideas better is we challenge them. But if, if, if the goal in challenging someone or someone's ideas is just to tear them down and not to try to point out areas where it may be deficient and it needs to be improved or point out why it won't work, but from a substantive but, standpoint. But, but you're, you're, you're getting to a point that a lot of, it's not true of all Democrats, but there are a lot of them that want to do what you're saying. And then you're dealing with uh, an environment and some folks that have no principles. And that's really the, the balance. How do you, yeah, it takes two, it takes two, <laughs> it, it, takes it takes two. two. And then if you're not going to have that, then, then you have to be, and I, and I believe it's possible by the way to, and to stay on your principles. And then you gotta be willing to directly hit them back. It's not going low. I say it's hit them directly with the truth and tell people that they are lying and this will hurt you. And this is why, or figure out a way to tell the narrative better, uh, because as Deval Patrick said, uh, Republicans have been masters of marketing the message. They, they know how Correct. to do it Correct. and just sell some horrible policies. Like I just, just one, no matter what, I want to take away your health care. It was their policy. I want, to, <laughs> I want you not to have health care. I want to make sure less people have health care, more people get sick, and more people essentially are, are likely to expose themselves and die. That's the policy of trying to get rid of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, whatever you want to call it. And they found a way to say, uh, you're going to go to a death panel if we get this law to pass. And it got people to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting about that? Um, I, when I hear that, I always go to the point that a lot of times it feels like, now this is just my impression, but it feels like Democrats are often content on trying to have the moral high ground and that's it. And not with the, they don't go in with the same uh, aggression in terms of trying to, to sell their ideas. You know, whereas the Republicans a lot of times come in with crazy ideas, not all the time, you know, they're as, as Deval Patrick said, there are, there are ideas from all over the place. It's good ideas, but a lot of times there'll be ideas that don't make any sense. And Obamacare, by the way, was a Republican idea for healthcare originally yeah. until, yeah, and, until and, it became socialism when Obama talked about it. Yeah. Yeah, but it, you know the the effort on the on the right is always begins with how to with selling your idea, not necessarily whether it's the greatest idea or something that's feasible or whatnot. It's it's just you got to sell it, and then you figure it out after the fact. Whereas the Democrats, a lot of times, or the left, they'll say, "Hey, you know, I, I this is just this is just doing the right thing." And so, therefore, I shouldn't have to sell it. And it's like, well, no, no, you got to sell it. Hey, look, we're no. in a selling business. <laughs> you got to sell to the public that your ideas work. Otherwise, you're not getting elected and it's over, brother. You know, there's an old saying, uh, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, you know, in politics, you got to convince that horse to drink because, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it won't just sit, it won't just all happen magically because you're coming from the right place and your heart's in the right place or you're doing good by people. You know, you, you have to convince people. And, and that's the name of the game. Like you said, it's the sales game. And then you have to convince people 
people that you are, you're, whether you're selling yourself, whether you're selling your policy, you know, and, and all of those pieces play a role. And, you know, but that's why you need participation because it, it without participation, you don't want only the diehards on any side of an issue participating. You want the people that are more lukewarm and to, to listen and say, Hey, you know, okay, this is the one that sounds good to me. And it, you want all of that. If, if you, any decision-making is only made by people whose head is completely lost in it, can't see the forest for the trees. It's hard to get well-rounded decision-making. So the piece of our democracy that's supposed to account for that is that people are supposed to participate. People are supposed to vote. And, you know, so that's something that we definitely need because another thing is the negativity may not fly as much um, if you have more than just the, 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 the diehards in the game. That's know? correct. A, but it takes framing issues in a way that people can understand how it actually yeah. affects them to get involved. Yeah. So if there's a lesson, you know, frame, stop, stop explaining, frame, 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 yeah. you're explaining, you're losing. Uh, Reagan was right on that. It's the reason why they called him the great communicator. The man didn't know how to communicate. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, it, it I worked. know there was one thing that we have to touch on though, um, yep. before we go on, I know we, you know, we don't, we have to wrap up soon. Um, pass it on. That, that was, that was an incredible story you told. It was, wasn't um, it? And that's something that uh, I think that we all have to to, con- to to consider in our daily life, in terms of how we're treating other people. And yes, little things you do make a difference to other people. And you know, we're all here together. We're all in this together in our community, in our homes first, in our communities, our schools, and the people you interact with on a day to day basis have you're connected to them more than you are somebody across the country. Absolutely. You know, and and so. Oftentimes, it's really something that we have to keep in mind and be conscious of how we treat people, how we treat people as they pass by. Do we hold the door? Do we do something nice for someone when you see they're in need? Um, You know, that's how each individual can make their their world, their community, the things they interact with on a day to day basis better. You know, take ownership of that and do little things. And so, I mean, I I was I was really touched by that. No, I agree with pass it on. And it made me reflect on this weekend. My, my, my grandmother died, James, you know that. But mm-hmm. uh, I went to her funeral. And what I said at her funeral was that everybody has an opportunity to do some extraordinary things by doing little things in that moment. Uh, ordinary moments can offer extraordinary opportunities to make a difference in somebody's life. Uh, somebody's life. So, you know, make sure you're doing everything you can and be the best version of yourself. And that's what my grandmother was. So, uh, you know, she was a school teacher, a volunteer, make sure people were, were registered to vote and raised six really uh, powerful kids. And she, she grew up in early 20th century Alabama. And uh, it's amazing to, to, to think about how far she had uh, gone based upon where she started. So all of us, you're right, have an opportunity to make an extraordinary difference and pass it on. You see somebody in need, pass it on because uh, we're all we're all fortunate in some ways, whether we Uh, see it or not so we want you to pass it on here at disruption now until next time i'm rob richardson i'm james keys and we'll see you next time